To me, if we're talking about constipation, constipation is the manifestation of symptoms, symptoms that you don't want to have. This could occur in a person who poops every day. This could occur in a person who poops more than once a day, or even in a person who has diarrhea. The bottom line is that when you are pooping at the right frequency, you feel well, you feel satisfied after a bowel movement, you feel like you are in a rhythm, and what that number is. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us. This is episode 65 of season four, number 260 overall. The question, how often should you poop? Is it once a day, once every other day, a few times a week? Well, that is the question that millions of backed up adults want an answer to. Studies within the last decade have estimated that anywhere from 1% to as much as 80% of adults are constipated to some degree. That's a pretty wide range, right? Well, that's true because the answers depend greatly on what part of the world they're coming from. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, there are many others who spend a good chunk of their life in the john, especially right after they've changed their diet. And that is where we begin today with Dr. Will Bolsowitz, gastroenterologist and author of the best-selling book, Fiber Fueled. How appropriate for this conversation. He is here for his monthly constitutional. And we're going to answer that question, how often should you poop? Beyond that, we're also going to talk about if you're backed up, what are the best foods to get you going again? Now, this is a conversation that we had all about poop on the exam room live. And we took questions from viewers when we opened up the doctor's mailbag. And if you ever get the chance on a Wednesday afternoon, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific over on YouTube and Facebook, that is when we do the exam room live. Would love for you to join us. Have conversations like this. So today, Dr. B is going to answer questions about whether fiber is the only nutrient that's important for keeping regular and why coffee makes us poo. And for those of us who are backed up, why straining isn't necessarily a good idea. In fact, it's a really bad one. And how you can essentially train yourself to get on a regular schedule for that old constitutional. Also today, stick around after the Q&A because I've got details on a new study that shows an alarming increase in the amount of ultra-processed food that children and teens are eating. We're talking jaw-dropping numbers, especially after hearing how your gut reacts to these foods, which we're going to get into today. And with that, it's time to get things moving with Dr. Bolsowitz. My friend, how are you? I'm doing great, Chuck. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited to talk about poop. This is what I do for a living. Uh, you are the man. I knew that you were the perfect person for this episode. Uh, when this question from Steve 
came across, I was like, I'm saving this for a Dr. Bolsowitz episode. Steve writes, ever since I started eating a plant-based diet, I've been going number two like crazy at least twice a day. Is that normal? How many times a day should you poop? Well, I think, you know, let me start with this. We, we need to separate the frequency of bowel movements from what we preconceive to mean constipation or diarrhea. So basically what I'm saying is I don't, I don't just look at how often you poop to determine whether or not a person is constipated, whether or not they have diarrhea. To me, uh, Chuck, if we're talking about constipation, to me, constipation is the manifestation of symptoms, symptoms that you don't want to have that is the result of inadequate evacuation. This could occur in a person who poops every day. This could occur in a person who poops more than once a day, or even in a person who has diarrhea. And we can talk about that in more detail. The bottom line is that when you are pooping at the right frequency, you feel well, you feel satisfied after a bowel movement, you feel like you are in a rhythm. And um, what that number is, I don't want to create duress for people who are pooping something then different than a number that I'm going to state because you could poop every other day, okay? Like once every two days and have a good, complete evacuation, feel completely satisfied, have no digestive symptoms, and that's the right rhythm for you. That being said, when we introduce a plant-based diet. We all know what we're ramping up. We're ramping up the fiber, all right? The fiber not only adds bulk to the stool, the fiber feeds the healthy microbes that live inside of us. And those healthy microbes actually make up the majority of the weight of a bowel movement. Our bowel movement is not just the excrement or the waste of our food. Our bowel movement is predominantly reflection of our microbiome. And so you crank up the plants, you're going to have more stool, both from bulk and also from more microbiome, feeding the microbiome. And as a result, it would be expected that a person is going to have more frequent bowel movements than they previously did. So when you're in the right zone in terms of fiber, many of us will have two or three bowel movements per day. But again, you could have a bowel movement once a day or every other day. And if it is a good, complete evacuation, you are satisfied, you feel good, you are in a rhythm, you're where I want you to be. All right. So let's talk about that rhythm. We have a question from Laura. Wants to know, should we be going at the same time every day or, as you said, every other day? And if so, how do we get on that regular rhythm? Yeah, well, our body, our body does have a natural circadian rhythm, right? So the circadian rhythm, we've, we've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but to catch everyone up who perhaps is watching for the first time, the circadian rhythm is basically the 24-hour cycle that revolves around the rise and the fall of the sun. And if you think about this planet, literally, literally going back to the genesis of this planet, the very beginning, there is one truth that has always been present. No matter what the state of affairs was, the sun would always rise and it would fall on a 24 hour cycle. That's the way that we all came up. That's the way that every single creature on this planet evolved, including the plants, including the microbes, including us humans. So no surprise, all life on this planet has 
a circadian rhythm. So our body functions in different ways based upon the timing of the day. We want to be in a rhythm. In a perfect world, it is nice when we are having good regular bowel movements that fall into line with that rhythm on a 24-hour basis. You don't need to feel stressed though. I don't want you to feel stress if you are having bowel movements that are slightly erratic or once in a while they don't happen on the day that you expect them to or at the time that you expect them to. That's okay. But at the end of the day, it is kind of nice when we are in that rhythm, you know, where perhaps it occurs for many of us in the morning, whether it be first thing in the morning, whether it be after a cup of coffee or after breakfast, that's a great time for us to have that good morning evacuation. It's a great way to start the day. Um, you can perhaps tell that I'm very comfortable talking about bowel movements. So I apologize for anyone who's like, wow, this guy is like really in his, in his zone. This is what I do all day. So, um, <laughs> but anyway, one thing that's interesting though, Chuck, and I'm going to, I'm going to throw this out there is a little bit of a health hack for people who are interested in how, how can you establish a rhythm, whether it's just to kind of have regular bowel movements or honestly, for a lot of people who have constipation, this is a good little trick. Your body will pay attention to your daily routine. So. I'll give you a quick example. I wake up very early, typically 5.30 or 6 every morning. I go to the bathroom and I go number one. All right. So that's the way it works. Guess what happens on Saturday Saturday morning when my alarm is not set? I still got to wake up at 5.30 or 6 in the morning and go to the bathroom and go number one because my body has gotten into that sort of rhythm where it's used to doing that at that particular time. To establish a bowel rhythm, what you do is you pick a time. I think the best time is typically if you're going to drink coffee, drink your coffee, have your breakfast. After that, that to me is the ideal time every morning. And if you want to establish a rhythm, what you do is you go to the toilet and you sit there for five minutes. You don't strain, you don't push, you don't force yourself to go. And after five minutes, if you haven't gone, you get up and you walk away, but you come back and you do it again tomorrow. And you do this at roughly the same time every single day. And what will happen is your body will, it's quite fascinating, pick up on this routine that you now have. And actually, believe it or not, your bowels will get into a rhythm where they start to move and prepare for a bowel movement around that time that you have now established. And so your body, if you just give it the right clues, send the message, this is what we want to do. Your body will adapt to your, to your request. Mm. Is, is this something that has been studied or is this just something you've noticed yourself? This is conventional teaching. I, I, I don't recall, I mean, to be completely frank with you, Chuck, I, I, I haven't looked in detail to see whether or not there's any study to prove that, the, that this is in fact possible, but I can just tell you anecdotally this is conventional teaching within my field, gastroenterology. And th this is something that many doctors, including myself, will vouch it does work. All right. So just based off of that last explanation there, we have a lot of good comments, a lot of good follow-up questions, I should say. Um, let's start with Samantha. She wants to know, what is the harm in straining to poop? All right. Well, in a perfect world, our evacuations should be relaxed. 
uh, feel very natural, should not require us to be forcing things through. All right, now, I hope you guys don't mind. Again, this is what I do for a living. I'm going to use my hands to illustrate how a normal bowel movement is supposed to work. And then I'm gonna show you what happens in some of my patients, okay? And perhaps some of you who are here hanging out with us, you may be able to relate to this. So this right here, this is the anal canal at your bottom, okay? That is the anus. And up here is your rectum, okay? So rectum, anal canal. When we have a bowel movement under normal circumstances, the way that it works is there is a pinch, all right? And that pinch starts to push, propel forward, okay? We call this peristalsis. It is pushing forward and it is basically pushing the poop, which is right in here, down towards the bottom. As this happens, your anal canal and the pelvic floor muscles relax and they clear a path and the bowel movement drops out. That is a good, natural, relaxed evacuation. That's, that's the way that nature intended it. Unfortunately, muscles don't always work the way that we want them to work. Um, this is true of every single muscle that exists within our body, including our defecation muscles, which is unfortunate because I think many of us, we expect that to always work 100% of the time. And unfortunately, in some cases, it will not. So what we see in people that have these problems is that you get the pinch, you get the push, all right? The poop is right here, but you're not getting good relaxation of the bottom, all right? And there's a, there's a word that we use to describe this. It's called pelvic dyssynergia. Dyssynergia, loss of synchrony, loss of synergy, all right? The bottom is not complying. The anal canal is not opening, is not doing what we're asking it to do. So what ends up happening is you have this pocket and the poop is in there and your goal is to build pressure within that pocket because you want to evacuate, you wanna get it up. So you push, 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 push. And that basically creates a pressure within the system until what happens is you overcome the resistance that's right here at the anal canal. So the trap door, opens and snaps shut very quickly. And you get a little, uh, for lack of a better word, a turd. A little <laughs> turd just drops out. And I think that is technically the professional term, Chuck. And so, so, and you, you're straining to do this and it's just like, boom, boom. That is not a complete evacuation. That is not a bowel movement. And the problem is that for these people, they've, they've heard, oh, well, if you have a bowel movement every day, you can't be constipated. If you go to your doctor, and they're not really facile with, you know, really studying evacuations in the way that I guess I do for a living. They may hear, oh, you have a bowel movement every day. Well, you can't possibly be constipated. Well, this person is constipated. This person is not completely evacuating. If you're not completely evacuating, you are backing up. So that is part of what is happening when a person strains. Some of the downsides, you can, you can cause injury to the organs that are involved here. So one of the things is right here at the anal canal are the internal hemorrhoids, okay? We all have internal hemorrhoids. It's part of our anatomy. We all have hemorrhoids. It's just a question of how big are they and how much trouble do they cause? 50% of people age 50 have symptoms from their hemorrhoids, bleeding, itching, prolapse where the hemorrhoids pop out or even leakage, all right? 50% of people age 50, this is very common. It's just that you don't bring it up when you're at dinner with your friends. Hey, let me tell you about my hemorrhoids, guys. Like, but. I can guarantee you, your friends, you got enough of them 
you're going to have some friends who have hemorrhoid issues. So straining can, can, can exacerbate the hemorrhoids, make them worse. You're more prone to bleeding or hemorrhoidal type issues as a result of that. Um, the other thing that can happen, Chuck, real quick, is that particularly in women, what you can develop when you strain is something called a rectocele. All right. So back to my hands here. All right. This is not a heart shape. That's a heart shape. This is the rectum. All right. Rectum, anal canal right here. And basically, as this comes down, you got the poop right here. A rectocele is when there is a bulge, all right, a bulge in the rectum off to the side. See this bulge right here? And this bulge becomes a pocket where poop can now move in here. So even if the anal canal relaxes, the poop may move over here instead of coming out. That's problematic. You can't really have a good complete evacuation if the poop is moving into this side pocket called the rectocele. Rectoceles occur more frequently in women. And it's actually this bulge that I'm describing here. If you were to look at the anatomy in the pelvis, right here would be the, the back wall of the vagina. There are some women, this is, I mean, it, look, uh, this may sound foreign to people who um, have never experienced this, okay? It may sound a little bit weird, but there are many patients, particularly, you know, there are many women who come to my clinic with constipation issues who they will tell you that when they go to have a bowel movement, they actually apply pressure to the back wall of their vagina. And they basically provide support in that location. And when they do that, what they're doing is this bulge occurs, they're actually pushing the bulge back in. All right, so they're actually fixing and correcting for the rectocele that exists. So point being, uh, we covered a lot of territory there, but point being that straining can make hemorrhoids worse, can um, create a rectocele, which is problematic for good, healthy evacuations. And the bottom line is that although we all strain from time to time, we all have moments where we need to basically invoke that mechanism to get the bowel movement moving. Generally speaking, you should not be straining on the majority of your bowel movements. If you are, then it suggests that there's an issue. Let's switch gears here. Take a question from Colleen at 1218. Uh, wants to know why do we poop after drinking coffee? She writes, Chuck and Dr. B, since coffee encourages poop, is it healthy or unhealthy for the gut? Uh, we have studies actually that, that look at the effect of coffee on the gut. There have actually been several studies, one of which is with um, the company Zoe that I'm on the, on the scientific advisory board, where they, take a, they took a look at the gut microbiome um, in, association, in association with dietary choices. And what they found was that there's a very, very powerful association between coffee consumption and specific microbes that exist in our gut. So it's good news. If you're a coffee drinker, coffee is actually beneficial to the gut. It has polyphenols. It has healthy acids like chlorogenic acid. And um, these things, the polyphenols, they uh, can actually stimulate bowel motility. And it's not so much that the coffee gets all the way down to the colon and stimulates it directly. But what it does is it activates motility throughout the entire system, the stomach, the small intestine, the colon, they all start to move when you drink coffee. And this is part of the reason why it can be beneficial for having bowel movements. Now there's one quick caveat. There's about 10% of people who have a gene. Okay. So this is inherited. This is not your microbiome. 10% of people who have a gene that when they drink coffee, it actually gives them diarrhea. 
All right. And if that is the case, you can't, at least at this point in time, change your genetic code. And so you would have to either switch to, you know, less coffee, dilute it down, or you would want to switch over to something else like, like tea. Question from Britt. What are the best foods for relieving constipation? Can you name a few? Well, uh, it's a complicated topic. There is some nuance to this, Chuck. So let me um, lead by saying this. Everyone knows me as the fiber guy. Um, sometimes people misunderstand and think that what I say is to only consume like maximum fiber, increase, 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 always increase. There are some scenarios where actually I'm more cautious about what I'm doing from a dietary perspective. So let me let me sort of lay this out a little bit when it comes to constipation. For, for the majority of people who have mild constipation, you increase your water consumption, you hydrate, you increase your fiber consumption, you move your body, all right? If you do these things from the majority of people who have mild constipation, which is the most common form of constipation, they will see improvement and likely relief from this particular issue. Water, fiber, move your body. But when you get to the type of patient who comes to see me in the clinic, people that have moderate or particularly severe constipation, ramping up the fiber in the short term can actually be problematic. There is something that happens when you increase the fiber consumption. Your gut microbes ferment it, they produce gas. That is a normal physiologic thing. Like we all have gas and that's a part of having a healthy gut and a healthy diet. All right, but when you start ramping up the fiber, these microbes start producing gas. If you're constipated, they produce even more gas. And they've done these interesting studies, Chuck, where they've shown that gas, methane gas, actually slows bowel motility. So you crank up the fiber, which produces more gas, the gas slows down motility, which makes you even more constipated, which produces even more gas, and you get into a vicious cycle. The solution in this particular case is to get your bowels moving. You have to get your bowels moving. And in that particular case, Chuck, there is no magical food in terms of, oh, if you, if you have moderate or severe constipation, hey, eat this food and you will fix your constipation. That's not true. I can just tell you that as a gastroenterologist, that's, that's, that's not true. Mild constipation responds very well to increased fiber. Moderate or severe, you need to get the bowels moving before you crank up the fiber. It's not that you shouldn't crank up the fiber. You want the fiber. You just got to get the bowels moving first. Now, real quick, Chuck, a couple of specific foods that I love for constipation. Generally speaking, I'm sure. Let's, let's go to the chat box, you guys. Everyone who's in the comments section in the chat box, type in your favorite food for constipation. Let's see what you guys come up with. I'm going to tell you a couple of mine. Ground flax seed, chia seeds, of course, very hydrated. You're not going to do those dry because chia seeds need a lot of water. So you want like a chia pudding, for example, where they've already soaked up the water, but ground flax, chia seeds, kiwi. These are a couple of my personal favorites when it comes to constipation. People are saying prunes. I completely agree with that. Um, let's see. Uh, we have a couple other suggestions, pumpkins, fruits, oats. Oats are a good source of fiber. Psyllium husk. So psyllium husk typically taken as sort of a supplement. Um, psyllium husk for particularly mild constipation can be helpful. So yeah, uh, those are, those are some of the approaches for that. 
Well, here's a good follow-up. We see Sherry here at 12:30 said magnesium daily. Um, is there another nutrient other than fiber that's important for staying regular? Magnesium, magnesium is great as something that can help in terms of maintaining our bowel rhythm. And um, there's different, there's many different forms of magnesium. I could literally teach for an hour on the topic of magnesium by itself. There's many different forms of magnesium. You guys will see this at the market. I'm of course referring to magnesium supplements right now. And so for example, magnesium glycinate, magnesium glycinate is great for sleep. Okay. It is great for mood. Magnesium is good for sleep and mood. Um, magnesium glycinate is not great for constipation. When we are constipated, we want magnesium that's not very easily absorbed. So my typical go-to, and it's very well studied with randomized controlled trials to show that it's effective and works, is magnesium oxide. That's my typical go-to. Other ones that are good for constipation, magnesium citrate, magnesium sulfate. Most of the time I will have my patients take magnesium before bedtime. And um, that's because it helps with sleep. So I find Chuck that the prevalence of magnesium deficiency in our society is extremely high, even among people who eat a plant-based diet. And so from my perspective, there is a place where magnesium becomes a very nice option for people who have moderate or severe constipation that are not going to respond adequately to quite simply hydration, fiber, and exercise. You can have the hydration, you can have the exercise, you're gonna be careful with the fiber like we just talked about. And then if you get the magnesium on board and you get into that rhythm that we're describing, now you start cranking up the fiber and you're, you're going and you're good. All right, let's have some fun here. Uh, first thing we're not first, having fun. We're not having oh, we're fun. Ha we're having. We're, we're, we're going to crank up the level of fun, just like we're going to crank up oh, our dear. level of fiber. Oh, uh, but first things first. I I just want to say hi to Nor um, and say Nor, please do not post that picture on Instagram. Um, I'm very happy for you. I don't recommend posting that picture. You can go read what it was that Nor wrote. Uh, it's but here's probably the type of picture that I get in my clinic when people have their selfies that they take, like three times a day, people are like, you got to check out the selfie that I have. And it's not them. It's something in the toilet bowl. Yes, man. Like that's a thing. I had no idea. I yeah. had no idea, but uh, congratulations. I'm, I'm glad that that happened for you yesterday, Nor. Uh, all right. Now here's a question that so many of us wonder as soon as we're able to formulate our first thought. And this one comes to us from Peter at 1222. Why does poop smell so bad? It's not supposed to smell bad. Well, maybe that's a controversial thought. I don't know. It's look, it, the f poop has a smell, right? That smell is reflective. Chuck, you're looking at me like I'm totally crazy. Perhaps I've lost my mind here. Uh, I'm, I'm just waiting on the explanation here, man. All right. All right. So poop, poop is reflective of our gut microbiome. It is very personal. Actually, your, your gut microbiome is um, as unique as your fingerprint. 7.8 billion people on this planet, there are no two people with the exact same gut microbiome. And our poop is a manifestation of our personal gut microbiome. So there are many people, correct me if I'm wrong, I have a feeling that the comment box, the chat box is about to go in fuego here. 
<laughs> but there are many people who will say, if they're being completely honest, they like the smell of their own brand. Okay. And the reason why is because this is your smell. This is your gut microbiome. It is the scent of your gut microbiome. If you notice a foul odor, sulfur type containing smell, all right, rotten eggs type containing smell, then there may be something wrong with your digestive system that warrants investigation, right? If it is that foul that you personally think that your own bowel movement smells horrible, then, then there may be something wrong from a digestive perspective that needs to be investigated. The other thing to bear in mind is that actually um, many times that smell is rotting. Rotting, the rotting smell, the rotten smell can be from the consumption of animal products. And it can give you that sulfur or rotten eggs type smell that some of us have come across. To be fair and balanced, not to just completely smash on the animal products, although that is what you're smelling is rotten flesh. Uh, the, the other thing is that sometimes cruciferous vegetables, because they contain a lot of sulfur compounds, if you consume a large volume, for example, of broccoli, you may notice um, a funny smell that's associated with that. But the bottom line is that your bowel movements aren't supposed to smell so horribly that you, you feel like there's something really wrong. If that's the way you feel, trust your intuition. There may actually be something wrong, and it warrants going to see an, a gastroenterologist and being investigated. Uh, you know, man, I never really thought about this until just now. Is my odor profile? I'll put that in quotes. Has changed dramatically from when I was overweight to now. I mean, it's 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 a much less offensive odor. I will put it to you that way. Uh, I don't think I will ever say that anybody's smells like roses or lemon drops, uh, but certainly uh, it is much, much, much less offensive than when I was eating $20 of Taco Bell a day, plus pizza, plus, you know, hot dogs and everything else that's bad for you. Like it is a big, big, big difference, Dr. B. And that, and that Chuck is not exclusively your gut microbiome. That is not exclusive your gut microbiome, but what that is, is that is the intersection between your gut microbiome and your dietary choices. And we can't separate those two things because your dietary choices do have an influence on your gut microbiome. And so, so these two things come together and they converge. Then, you know, Chuck Carroll, I mean, look, man, I used to eat $20 of Taco Bell too. And $20, if you can eat $20 of Taco Bell, you're eating a lot of nasty food, right? I mean, that's like, you know, a, a, a 12 pack of tacos is less than $20. <laughs> oh yeah. Right? Oh yeah. So, but the point being though, is um, it's that nasty food like that, you know, what is that cheese that they put on everything in Taco Bell? Like, what is that? It's not even, I don't even think it's derived from actual cheese. And um, there's that in combination with the unhealthy gut microbiome that basically converged to create that. So it makes complete sense, actually. Oh, it's just God awful. Uh, here's an interesting question as well. And and real talk, Nora, I'm going to double down on that and say, uh, yeah, me too. Uh, Nora is wondering, uh, how much weight do are we supposed to lose with each BM? Basically, like, is it one to two pounds? Because I've, you know, Nora's saying that they've dropped one to two pounders. So is there an average, is there a right size, a healthy size? Um, it, it actually depends quite a bit on what your dietary pattern is. So if you're eating a whole food plant-based diet, then we come back to the fact that you are ramping up your fiber consumption, which adds bulk 
and also feeds your gut microbes. They multiply, they grow. Therefore, you have larger bowel movements. Those bowel movements also absorb water. And um, so, you know, what is the exact amount? It's very hard for me to say. Here's what I do know, Chuck. We know that the gut microbiome, in, in sum, weighs three to five pounds. And when patients come to see me for their colonoscopy and they flush everything out, they typically will weigh somewhere in the range of three to five pounds less as a result of flushing out their entire bowels. How much should a bowel movement weigh? I think that one to two pounds is probably a reasonable uh, assumption, recognizing that you have somewhere in the range of three to five total pounds of bowels in there. And when I say complete evacuation, I just mean you're getting out everything that needs to come out and you're not backing up, but it's not that you literally are so well evacuated that you're ready for a colonoscopy. That's not the case. Good answer. All right. Uh, here's a question from Lenski. Lenski has a stomach of steel. This one came in at 1238. Lenski writes, I'm actually listening while enjoying my dinner. My question is, is constipation normal or common during menstruation? It can be. It can be. So actually, our, uh, the women's sex hormones can alter bowel motility, both estrogen and progesterone. In fact, particularly progesterone can um, alter bowel motility. So during menstruation, we have alteration of those uh, female hormones, those female sex hormones, and that does affect gut motility. And so there are some people who will suffer with constipation during that particular period of time. And this is this also explains, Chuck, why uh, during pregnancy, constipation is very common as well because the because of the um, increase in progesterone. Couple more questions here before we close up the doctor's mailbag for the day. Uh, we have a question from Laura who writes: Is it unhealthy to eat the same thing every single day? She says that she's on a restrictive diet due to allergies. Is there something that she's going to be missing out on? Well, first of all, I sympathize with a person who feels like they have been pushed into a corner with their diet as a result of their health issues. And, you know, part of the problem has been, and I speak about this in great detail in my, in my book, Fiber Fueled, part of the problem is that for the last 20 years, the messaging that we have received from popular diets, popular diet cultures, fad diets, the messaging has been, if that food is a problem, get rid of it, just get rid of it. And that'll fix your problems. Except there are so many people who are out there right now. I'm sure many who are here today hanging out with us that will vouch for the fact that when you restrict your diet, you're not actually better. You may be temporarily better for a short period of time. But then what you notice is actually your health continues to deteriorate and it gets worse. And the reason why is because the gut microbiome thrives on abundance, thrives on diversity. Diversity of plants on your plate translates into diversity of microbes in your gut. And when we restrict every single time that they've studied dietary patterns that encourage dietary restriction, whether it be a gluten-free diet, whether it be a permanent low FODMAP diet where you don't bring the food back, um, whatever it may be, whether it be a paleo diet, Whatever dietary pattern, if you look at the effect on the gut microbiome, there I have not come across a study to date that says that the, the, the gut microbiome is healthier as a result of dietary restriction. So for this person, for Laura, who's having these particular health issues, first of all, I want to say that I sympathize 
And obviously I can't, I don't have enough information, nor am I able to give medical advice in this particular forum. I mean, it has to be in my clinic as my particular patient, but just kind of speaking broadly, not necessarily specifically to Laura's condition. I don't want my patients to be permanently on a restrictive dietary pattern. There are some scenarios like it's not, this is not a simple rule of always add more plants and always increase fiber. Again, there is nuance. There are scenarios where there are temporary restrictions that take place, but ultimately the goal needs to be that we heal the gut. And when we heal the gut, we are afforded the opportunity to start to bring these plants back low and slow, ramping them up over the course of time so that you can build strength within your gut. You can get functionality back that you feel that you lost. It's not permanently gone. Your gut is adaptable. It can be trained. It can be made stronger. And there's a method to do it. And the method is not to restrict. The method is to bring those foods back, but under the guidance of someone who can help you to do it successfully. All right. Next to last question is we talked about how coffee can help to get you moving, but somebody is asking, are there other drinks that would back you up? Are there other drinks that would back you up? Certainly dairy drinks would back you up. Uh, the saturated fat content in uh, dairy, you know, a milkshake, things of that variety, they can certainly contribute to constipation. Um, uh, let's see, alcohol in some cases, certainly alcohol has an effect on the gut microbiome, particularly excessive consumption of alcohol. Yeah, I mean, let's just, I, I, I want to say something about alcohol real quick. So coming clean, like I, I enjoy having a glass of wine once in a while. I enjoy having a beer once in a while. Um, so I'm not here to say that, you know, this is Dr. B uh, uh, creating his own rules and then pushing them on you guys. The reality though, is that there really isn't any science that is adequately powerful to indicate to me that we should be drinking alcohol, right? It's not like, there are so many other great opportunities for human health. Even when we talk about red wine, it's hard to know if people actually benefit. And um, there are a lot of people who do not. And there were there's recent emerging data coming out connecting alcohol to cancer risk. And so the bottom line is that, the, frankly, the safest amount of alcohol is no alcohol. And that's just being upfront and transparent about that. Well, you got me kind of wondering here about, uh, you mentioned beer specifically, and back in my olden days, I enjoyed beer quite a bit, especially when I would go and, and tailgate at a football game. Um, and literally, it was either later that night or the next day that my bowels would begin to smell like a brewery. So is it possible, you know, with excess for what it is that you are excreting later on to take on the smell almost identically to what it was when it went in? Yeah. Um, it, so it is, and clearly what's happening there is you are altering and disturbing the gut microbiome. And, you know, it's this concept of beer poops, right? So beer poops or the foul smell of beer. Um, part of it is the very high carbohydrate load that is simple carbohydrates. Um, that's part of the issue that exists, but it's also that you're disturbing and disrupting the gut microbiome. And when a person has a hangover, Chuck, you know, think about this. We, we attribute a hangover to dehydration. If it was dehydration, then you would just drink more fluid and you would feel completely fine. 
Like you would feel completely fine. It wouldn't drag on for 24 hours, right? A, a, a hangover is a disturbed, dysbiotic, damaged gut microbiome that is the consequence of excessive alcohol consumption. And so it's just something to be aware of because I think that's part of the package and the explanation. Uh, oh, yeah, man. Uh, that that makes all the sense in the world because I'm telling you, man, the bowl smelled like an Anheuser-Busch brewery. Uh, final question comes to us from Fabi at 1240. This is a good one that I think probably a lot of people are wondering as well. Fabi writes, hi, Doc. Is having long and thin poops after a normal sausage-like one a sign of too much fiber? No, I don't think it's a sign of too much fiber. Um, it may be indicative of relaxation at the pelvic floor that is incomplete. Um, so when we see these funny shapes, now naturally, if you have a change in bowels, I would encourage you to get checked. And um, at a minimum, at a minimum, a rectal exam uh, done by a trained health professional like your primary care doctor or a gastroenterologist or a colorectal surgeon. Um, so at a minimum, a bottom exam, but actually I, I view this as a very strong indication to get a colonoscopy. When you have a change in bowel habits that you can't fully explain, you should get checked with a colonoscopy just to be sure that you're not missing something that could exist within the rectum. That being said, if we assume that the colonoscopy is normal, then I'm thinking about what's happening. Going back to this model, okay, to remind you guys, this is the rectum. This is the anal canal right here. When I go back to this model, and you're pooping and it's coming out skinny, I'm worried about what's happening here at the anal canal. And it could be that you're incompletely opening, right? So rather than a good complete opening, you're just getting this little opening. It may be that there's still some tightness there. It may also be that you have hemorrhoids that are down in here, okay? And those hemorrhoids are very large and partially obstructing the outlet. And so, and that, that comes back to on the colonoscopy, you can see the size of the hemorrhoids or you could figure that out during a bottom exam. There you go, man. I feel like there is a lot more ground that we should cover. So I think that we should do a uh, number two, part two, and uh, and we'll follow up with that. So guys, keep posting your questions in the comments and in the chat, and uh, we are going to save them. And Dr. B, if you're up for it, man, I would love to do this again with you. I'm always up for it, Chuck. It's always great to hang out with you, my friend. And I thank you for all the lovely people who are here submitting your questions, uh, keeping the comment box very active. Thank you guys for coming and hanging out with us today. Oh, yeah. And uh, give uh, Dr. B a follow on Instagram at the Gut Health MD and head over to his website, theplantfedgut.com. Take his free plant fed gut seven day challenge. You cover some of this stuff with the seven day challenge? Yeah, we do. I mean, I, you know, it's, it's so interesting, Chuck, because what I have discovered, I, I really didn't anticipate or realize this, um, you know, years ago. But what I've discovered over the course of time is that people are quite fascinated with this topic. Uh, you know, talking about bowel movements, people want to hear more about it. They want to understand it. They're not really comfortable talking about this publicly, but but I think that everyone sort of has an interest. Like, gosh, what's the deal with that? The book, what does your poo say about you? Sold. I mean, this is not my book. I didn't write it, um, and it's actually kind of a joke book. But it sold six hundred thousand copies. What does your poo say about you? <laughs> it sold six hundred. That's ridiculous. Like that's uh, Michael Greger level sales. So. Bottom line is that I uh, do include stuff like this, these types of conversations, because people are very interested. They want to talk about it. I think it's important. I think it's very important. 
And uh, another book that you should pick up is Fiber Fuel. That is Dr. Bolsowitz's book. You, there is a link to order your copy from Amazon right now in the episode notes. Uh, Dr. B, thank you so very much, man. This has been um, really, it, it was fun, um, slightly immature at times, but immature in a good, wholesome way, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I don't know what to tell you, Chuck. I am who I am. Uh, people are like, did your wife know that you were like this when you got married? I was like, she knew who she was marrying. This is who I am. I don't know what to tell you. I would love it if you could join us for the exam room live on Wednesdays. Starts at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. It's a great opportunity for you to ask your question live. We stream the show over on the Physicians Committee's YouTube channel and Facebook page. But if you can't join us live, you can also send your question to me ahead of time. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. Such a great conversation today, an important one too. So many people had questions and it's just one of those taboo topics that nobody really talks about. But then when someone finally does, it's like the floodgates open and everyone starts getting in on that conversation. So yes, fear not, we will be doing another show about poop in the not too distant future. You have my word. Now, one of the things that we talked about today was how the digestive tract reacts to junk food and fast food. So I wanted to share a study with you that was published this week that speaks to the heart of that. So for that, let's head down to the exam room news desk. Health experts are sounding the alarm after a study revealed a shocking increase in the amount of ultra-processed food that children and teens have been eating over the last two decades. Two-thirds of their calories every day are now coming from those foods, many of which are loaded with sugar and salt and tend to have less fiber. The Tuft study finds that the biggest increases in calories came from microwavable burgers and frozen pizza, which now account for 11% of the average child's calories. Conversely, the study finds that the amount of calories from healthier, minimally processed or fresh foods decreased from nearly 28 to roughly 23%. And the lead author states, quote, Food processing is an often overlooked dimension in nutrition research. We may need to consider that ultra-processing of some foods may be associated with health risks independent of the poor nutrient profile of ultra-processed foods generally. Now, some of the ultra-processed foods that were mentioned in the study specifically were hydrogenated oil, flavor enhancers, sugary breakfast cereals, french fries, fast food burgers, and some lunch meats like bologna and salami. The study also warns that these foods are known to contribute to things like diabetes and obesity and other serious conditions such as certain cancers. Now keep that in mind because the current childhood obesity rate is about one in five, which is 14 and a half million kids right now in the U.S. And what the studies have also shown is that children who are overweight or have obesity, they're more likely to struggle with their weight than as an adult. And speaking of grown-ups, the current obesity rate for adults in the U.S. is 42 and a half percent and a staggering 73.5% of all adults are also overweight. That's about three out of every 
four. And so that is why we do the exam room. That is why we do this show. It's to help fight these unhealthy trends by giving you the information and the tools that you need to lead a healthier life. So in addition to getting help for yourself, let's also help some others lead a healthier life too, because there are a lot of people out there who are in need of some assistance. And one of the easiest ways you can help someone else believe it or not, is just by subscribing to the exam room podcast by the physicians committee on Apple podcast or Spotify, wherever you get your shows. And when you subscribe, please also leave a five-star rating and a nice review because every five-star rating and nice review helps us climb a little bit higher in the podcast rankings. And the higher we climb, the easier it becomes for people who need this information the most to discover it. And if you are ready right this second to make a change, you're ready to improve your health. Well, the nutrition-focused plant-based doctors and dietitians at the Barnard Medical Center would love to help you. To make an appointment today, visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. That's barnardmedical.org or 202-527-7500. Insurance is accepted and telemedicine visits are available, meaning you can visit with that doctor or dietitian right in the comfort of your own home. And by the way, these are the same doctors and dietitians who you have listened to on this very program, talking about doctors like Vanita Rahman and Dr. Jasmine Sardana and Dr. Jim Loomis, and then the wonderful dietitians like Lee Crosby and Maggie Neola and Susan Levin. All of them are so kind and so smart and so nice, and they know what it takes to improve your health. So lean on them right now, 202-527-7500, or schedule an appointment today at barnardmedical.org. And for now, that's going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Will Bolsowitz for joining us. Pick up a copy of his book, Fiber Fueled. You will not be disappointed. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>